Welcome back to the Career Therapy Podcast, where we explore the intersection of work and well-being. I am your host, Coach Marty, and each episode I interview mental health experts, coaches, and industry insiders to bring you practical insights and tips that will help you build a meaningful, rewarding, and sustainable career. So join me as we explore the path to career satisfaction, one conversation at a time. In today's episode, we sit down with Dr. Sharon Aduse, a licensed clinical psychologist with expertise in the developing brain, specifically focused on understanding the role that our context, culture, and social environment has on how our attention and self-regulation skills form throughout our lives. Over the last decade, she has worked to promote well-being and positive health outcomes in clinical, academic, and tech spaces, including the growing digital mental health industry. In this episode, we talk about childhood temperament and how it shows up in our work later in life, emotional reactivity and regulation, and how to improve your sensitivity to negative stimuli, and what you can do to build a self-care plan for yourself when times get tough in your career. If you like the Career Therapy Podcast, please leave us a review on Spotify or iTunes and share this episode with a friend or leave us a comment on YouTube so we can help more people navigate their way to a better career. That's all for the intro. Now let's dive into this week's conversation with Dr. Sharon Adusi. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very excited to jump into our conversation about emotional reactivity and regulation. And as we kick things off here, I'd love for you to just share a little bit about your background, the work you're doing today, and what brought you into this phase of your career. Yeah, absolutely. Those are like my my favorite topics to talk about, <laughs> reactivity and regulation. So I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Um, so my background, I, I started in um, the School of Education and social policy. I wasn't always there. I think like many other people, I started pre-med. But once I started taking those classes, I was like, oh, you know, it's so interesting that, you know, in medicine, you work with humans, but I'm like learning about a lot of molecules. Like I'm learning about how to interact with other people. Um, And so eventually I found my way to you know, the field of clinical psychology. And so um, my background is as a child clinical psychologist, all the work that I did throughout grad school was um, really trying to understand what exactly is emotion regulation and executive functioning. Um, How does this develop over time? What are the things that really get in the way of the development of those skills? And then how do we help kids get back on track once there's, you know, an interference in in the development process. Um, Probably about halfway through grad school, I hit that really like jaded phase that most people do, (laughs) where it was pretty clear that, you know, the number of years that it would take to put out a research publication, and then the number of people who, you know, I could see the little ticker counter of like, (laughs) there's like three people who have now read or like cited your paper. And I was like, you know, majority of those were probably me, you know, looking at the, looking at the publication. So to me, I was like very clearly, and I was also working with, um, you know, Head Start populations. And to me, I was like, the interventions that we're working on are never going to reach, you know, into the hands of the community. Like there's that, you know, now that I think this is outdated, but the 17 year, you know, publication, to practice Mm -hmm. research gap um, that was from public health, but those numbers are from so long ago. So it might be even more now. And so when you think about that, I was like, you know, at the time, I think when I was thinking through this, Pokemon Go became like a really big thing. And so I like looked at like the number of like downloads that Pokemon Go had. I was like, gosh, like the pacing of like academia versus technology is just we will not be able to keep up. So eventually I did my clinical residency um, at Stanford Children's Hospital um, and Children's Health Council, which is out in the Bay Area. And that was when I first learned that there were startups in mental health. Um, And there were also startups that were getting funding that didn't have either mental health clinicians or psychologists present. So I was really baffled. I was like, "How, how are they doing this? Like they're creating mental health and behavioral health (laughs) products. Um, 
And eventually I ended up um, starting to do some side gigs. So it was really early stage startups who were interested in developing some apps for children or parents. Um, And in that process, it was super rewarding to me to be able to be able to share some pretty fundamental basics of psychology, of child development and behavior. Um, And some of the founders who came from more tech and computer science backgrounds, they were, their minds were blown. And I was like, oh, wow, like it didn't, it didn't take too much, you know, for you to um, feel like you got something out of that. And then of course, because it was very early on at that point, I hadn't yet gotten um, my doctorate, I was on like pre-internship. So um, the the concept, I think for me to also get paid for my time was super novel um, <laughs> because throughout grad school, um, that was not something that was the case. Um, and so anyways, after that, that experience of doing these consulting gigs, um, it was just so rewarding to be able to see the recommendations that I was giving then put into a product just like a few days later and then to be able to use it. So I think at that point, I you know, the promise of digital mental health was pretty clear to me and the use of technology in that process. Um, and so I knew that I wanted to step into this industry. Um, there weren't many kid companies around at that point. So I just kept side gigging um, and then had my foot in academia at the same time. And then it was during the pandemic that, you know, these more full-time roles really opened up. Um, and so, so yeah, so now I'm I'm working in the digital mental health field. Yeah. That's incredible. And as we dig into the conversation here today, I hope, you know, I'm so excited to hear, hear some of your thoughts on the fundamental basics of psychology, child development and behavior, because I do think it plays so much into where people end up in their careers, how they react yeah. to stress and what they're trying and what, you know, we're all trying to do, which is just be a little bit better. Right. <laughs> and so um, when we think about uh, emotional reactivity and regulation, um, how do you conceptualize that? How do you define those terms and what, cause they, they are a little bit more technical. I think people just think I'm overwhelmed. Yes. I'm burnt out. Right. So how do you um, think about those terms and how might you explain them to someone who's not in the field? Yeah. Great question. So um, I like to kind of take a step back to the building blocks of like what makes us us. <laughs> so um, s- some of your listeners may have heard of something called temperament or child temperament. And sometimes people think of this as like really early uh, personality traits in kids. And so they have actually linked temperament traits over to personality traits. Um, so personality being like, if you remember from your psych 101, like ocean, <laughs> the openness and conscientiousness and, you know, those pieces, there are also temperament traits that kind of map onto that. So temperament is actually some of the earliest emerging biological differences and individual differences um, that uh, have been identified. Um, and they're made up of two building blocks. On one hand is something called reactivity, which is, you know, how, when, when there is some sort of stimulus that happens, um, or sometimes it's easiest explained if like, if I were to go, boop, you know, scare you, like there's some sort of thing that is, is happening right away. Does your reactivity system fire up like very quickly? And are you, how are you reacting to changes in your environment? Or um, do you have more of a blunted response? Do do you not really have too much of a reaction when there are things going on in your environment? And then on the other hand, with regulation, you have once that, once that boo in the, you know, that like sharp, sharp stimulus happens, how quickly can you get yourself back to baseline? So that's the regulation piece is managing the that change that happens. So there's a metaphor that um, is used, a really famous one in child uh, child temperament, and it's known as the dandelion and orchid theory. And so the idea is that if you think of a dandelion, they're very, very, I guess what some would call quote resilient, 
right? So there are all sorts of changes that will happen in the dandelion's environment, and they can pretty much thrive anywhere, right? You see dandelions, you know, on the side of highways and all these things. Um, and so their reactivity is pretty low, and they they don't really have much to um, regulate on because they're not, their systems are not being um, hold, you know, by, by changes in the environment. Whereas for something like an orchid, it's a flower that's very finicky and needs a lot of delicate care. And so if their conditions just aren't right, then their reactivity is much higher, right? And it's going to take more for them to regulate back to their baseline um, and to thrive in good conditions. What's really interesting is that, you know, for if you think of, apply this to, to children, so some people may have heard of like, um, oh, I'm like a highly sensitive person. I'm I'm pretty sensitive to my environment. What we've found in um, child intervention research is that those are also the children who benefit the most from having a positive and supportive environment. Um, so they actually benefit the most when, when intervention occurs early on. Um, and, and it goes both ways. So they also tend to have stronger reactions when the environment around them is negative. Um, and so ideally though, it is, it's great news, right? Those, that those children can access the positive interventions once you, once you apply it or um, that they get access to it. That's incredible. And you, you're you hitting on a lot of terms that have come up in the work that I do with a lot of workers, especially the highly sensitive person. That was something that came up in the past few months with quite a few clients. Um, you know, someone, someone shared a post with me um, talking about being a highly sensitive person. And then when I brought it to a group call, um, a bunch of people's like, eyes lit up and they're like, I just learned I was an HSP. Mm. And I was like, oh, okay. And we started digging into that a little bit and seeing like, you know, what are the different things that can be done to regulate and and manage ourselves so that um, these things don't derail us and don't create unnecessary problems uh, in our development, especially when it comes to our career. Because a lot of times people like HSPs will burn out or quit jobs or you know, maybe even like mess up an interview uh, or turn down an interview uh, because they mm -hmm. feel like they can't take on the stress. But obviously there are interventions both in youth as and as adults that can help us manage that process. And so when you're working with people or, or I guess when let's let's keep the, the clock rewound when working with young people who have who are HSPs, um, highly sensitive people. Uh, what are those interventions? What What's the difference between uh, a positive, supportive environment and a negative environment? And like, how extreme does it need to be to impact people in either direction? Mm, sure. So one of the areas, so some of your listeners may have heard of something called adverse childhood events, ACEs, um, which is now um, pretty, pretty widely um known and heard about. And, and these are, there, there's essentially a flip side of ACEs, which is called benevolent childhood experiences. Um, and these are examples of basically supportive environments. And some of the items on these screeners for benevolent childhood experiences are like, mm, I have an adult that I can go to that I trust. So that could be like a teacher even. Um, and there are elements of a community support and some sort of, uh, it's it's primarily social support related. Um, and so even taking a look at what those items are on that screener can be a good indicator of, the, this is at least in childhood, um, these are what are known as protective um, to the child, to any type of adverse events that are occurring in their environment. And then something that applies for both children um, through throughout adulthood is actually building on that dandelion orchid idea. So the plant metaphor. So one of the things that I really like to encourage my clients, um, and also I use this for myself too, <laughs> um, is you know thinking about it as um, as a, your plant care guide, right? So if you had to like put together a care guide of 
um, you know, this plant, you can choose whatever plant you like um, that represents you, you know, this plant thrives under these conditions, right? These are the stressors that, and, and this is what it looks like when these stressors occur, right? When this stress occurs, here is what is needed to regulate. You know, here's what's really effective to kind of get me back to baseline. And the really important thing about regulation is that there are typically two directions. So what I mean by that is that you can, there's like the relaxing, calming kind of relaxation and soothing that you might need. That's something that we call down-regulating. And then there's also something that you might need something that's like highly active and you need to like get stimulated and you need to get up and you need to like, um, that, that's something called upregulation. So I'll give you an example. So the, the key thing about the plant care guide is that you need to revisit it because you're not the same person that you were, you know, last month or even a year before. So, you know, one of the regulation tools that I use a lot is yoga. I've been practicing yoga for a really long time. That to me oftentimes is more of the down regulation. It's a relaxed state. During the pandemic, I was so like, it was just like cabin fever. And I had so much like energy built up within, within me that yoga wasn't doing it, the relaxing kind of yoga. And so suddenly I need to, I, I realized that I needed to engage in activity that was basically like, you know, more of like a hit kind of thing. Um, the high intensity interval training or jumping up and down, I needed to get energy out. So these are two different ways of regulating. And it's really important for, for people to reflect on which one is going to be most useful to them. Um, Cause it differs by situation and it also differs over time. I really love that. And as someone who's killed many plants in the past year, <laughs> it does also scare me. <laughs> um, when you've done this exercise, what what plant um, do you see yourself as? Oh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, so um, sometimes it changes, but most of the times I just go with like my my favorite plant of of the season. Um, so I really like sunflowers. Oh, nice. Yeah. I, mean, I would love to be a snake plant. Those things can withstand anything. Uh, They're very resilient. Yes. Yeah. Someday. <laughs> um, but I really like what you're saying here, the downregulation, the upregulation, because I do think a lot of the mental health space online is focused on grab a pillow, chill out, meditate, yes. you know, all of that kind of stuff. And um, even in my own anxiety in my own life, I tend to latch onto those things when I need to, when I, when I'm feeling, you know, spinny or whatever it might be. Um, or even like going for a walk is, is, is kind of in between the down and up regulation. Yeah. Um, but one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately, especially when I start to have like sleep problems or things like that is like, maybe I just need to go get stuff out, like get the energy out of me. Right. And I do think that a mm -hmm. lot of the kind of soothing stuff is great, but you know, if you're getting to the end of the day and you're feeling the Sunday scaries, you're feeling whatever, maybe it's not so much sitting on a pillow and it's more, you know, exhausting yourself in, in some way, shape or form. And that also plays into a thought I've had a lot recently where, you know, a big piece of what people are trying to do is get more time back, right? We have a lot of hybrid work. We have a lot of, um, when we are doing research on mental health, it's like, find space for yourself, say no to things, you know, make sure you have like a Saturday free or things like that. And I'm always curious, obviously, it's a balance whenever we're trying to do these things. But the balance between keeping busy, so that you don't hyper focus on your anxiety, um, mm -hmm. versus overworking yourself to distract yourself from your anxiety and trying to find that balance. I'm kind of, I'm curious, how have you seen that show up in the work you've done or in the, in the studies that you've been looking into? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's a really delicate balance. And, and I think that only like, only you will be able to tell, you know, where you are on that spectrum. Um, some of the concepts that I've found pretty helpful in that is thinking about um, 
is thinking about your mental space. And I've, so I've always thought that, so I don't, I don't work for Headspace or anything like that, but I've always thought Headspace has a great name because it's literally what it is. Like, so the, so the reason why I'm bringing this up is in part because there are studies done um, on anxiety, essentially taking, taking up Headspace, taking up mental space. Um, and the way that they do these um, studies is by different, uh, like performance on different computer tasks, right? And so um, with higher anxiety levels, uh, it is shown that that anxiety is basically taking up working memory space. And so as a result, there's not as much working memory to actually work on the task and perform um, it's just there it's not there's nothing left there's no more space left to focus on the task um some of the other ways that they've measured this is basically with some neural markers of self-regulation and some people think it's actually no neural marker of anxiety as well it's it's known as the the oh oopsie or oh, oh shit response um called the error related negativity and um, for folks who are more anxious, the error-related negativity of like, oh, oops, is much, much higher. And it takes longer for those people to recover back, to get back on, on task. Um, and so one of the ways to address this is to think about, well, first, like checking in with where your headspace is at and what's what's filling it up. And what are the ways that you can kind of clear out some of that space? So one pretty quick example that has been found in the research um, is actually writing, like expressive writing, getting those things literally out of your headspace and onto paper. Um, and so that could be in the form of, you know, journaling, um, whatever worries that you might have, literally just get it all onto the paper. And they found that that actually creates more more mental space, um, or maybe in, in, in the form of like a to-do list, right? Sometimes like if, if your listener is maybe like sit in meditation or something like that, um, they might notice like, oh, like, why is it that only during those times I like, remember that I have all these things that I need to do. <laughs> um, and so if you have a to-do list and that kind of, you just know that all of it lives contained on that space and that you can use that space for, for other things. Um, and also, you know, this isn't necessarily for everyone. Um, so I'd say, you know, this is something to just try out for yourself. Sometimes I think for folks who come to me and they're like, I literally have no time in the day, or I just feel like I, I'm, I don't have any space at all, or time's going so quickly. Um, sometimes I'll recommend try and I try like for five minutes in the morning to just like sit in silence and those five minutes will feel like the longest time of your life, <laughs> you know? So um, it's all about like perspective. <laughs> um, and sometimes in those five minutes, you can suddenly feel like, wow, like I'm creating more space because um, you're literally just sitting with yourself. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Career Therapy's Unstuck Coaching Program, which was built to give you the personalized support you need to advance in your career without fear and turn work-related anxiety into professional accomplishments. When you enroll in the Unstuck Coaching Program's monthly membership, you get immediate access to all of the coaching resources you need to crush it in your job search. This includes two one-on-one -on -one calls with Coach Marty every month, weekly job search support group sessions with the Unstuck community, access to the Unstuck curriculum, which guides you through every aspect of your job search from strategy through negotiations, and an invite to the Career Therapy Slack channel where you can chat with Coach Marty whenever job search questions come up. Want to see if the Unstuck Coaching Program is right for you? Head over to careertherapy.com and schedule a free consultation with me in order to find out.
The relativity of time when it comes to our mental health is fascinating. And it's something we have not dug yeah. into very much. Um, how like a minute can feel like an hour when you're just sitting. Um, and an hour can feel like a minute when you're really in flow. And the one way it does show up in the job search, which I always find quite comical, uh, you know, it's it's totally rooted in anxiety. It's uh, when you're waiting to hear back from a company on the next step. Mm. Uh, they're like, we'll get back to you on Friday. And <laughs> people would be like, um, you know, it's been four hours past the time they said that they were going to message me. The whole world is falling down. And to you, to a job seeker, a day could feel like a month. And to the yeah. hiring manager that's like just trying to get the email out, a, a week could feel like an hour. So it really is quite interesting how... Um, our perception can change so much based on our emotions. And it really, it kind of makes me, gosh, it, it makes you question so much of reality, right? Like how much of reality is reality and how much of reality is our perception of it? And, you know, we can get really existential with it and think about, well, we don't even have the senses that other animals have, so we can't even experience and blah, 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 blah. But we won't, we won't go too, dark, too far down that alley. We'll keep it practical. Um, but yeah, there is this sort of like part of what we're trying to do as we learn to emotionally regulate is understand how we're perceiving things so that we are interpreting stimuli appropriately and then responding to it appropriately. And going back to what you brought up earlier with like the personality traits and temperaments and things like that, I wanted to just circle back to that. And I, I pulled up what a list of what some of them are. It's extroversion, agreeableness, openness, conscientiousness, and neuroticism. And I do think that uh, when it comes to like the big five or any of these kinds of things that break down personality, it's always, again, good to know where we are in those spectrums so that we can then interpret the data that's coming our way appropriately. How have you seen people learn to better understand their interpretations and then adjust their reactions? Um, because it, some, when you're in the midst of an anxiety attack, it's hard to realize that you have control, right? So what have mm. you sort of seen as people have been learning, as people go from childhood to adulthood, maybe they're highly sensitive, maybe they have high neuroticism. What are the things that they've done to better interpret the world and then better act in the face of these um, stressful stimuli? Yeah, I think that starting with the awareness, the self-awareness, it's probably the the first most important step um, and self-reflection. And then to infuse a little bit of playfulness and joy when it comes, because first of all, we just don't have enough of that in our life. But to take that, that, approach or that um that kind of uh, feeling state the joyfulness and the playfulness mixed with some curiosity to essentially act like a scientist that is experimenting with is this going to help me out is this going to help me out how did this work and to test different things because at the end of the day when it comes to the mental health field there's a lot of different coping strategies out there, different interventions that are shown to work. But at the end of the day, you are you and you know what works for you. So even though all of those things have been proven to work, it's on an aggregate kind of like general population. And so even when we're when I'm working in therapy with, with somebody, it's basically exploring all of the different types of strategies that we have and seeing which one actually sounds interesting to you, which one is resonating for you, and then to actually start testing some of those things. And then to almost have, if you wanted to, you know, put it into a chart format, which I've done for some, some of my clients, it's like, okay, so you decided that like taking a hot shower, you know, after like a stressful, something that's stressful, um, how well did that work for you? Was it um, three pluses, two pluses? How did that work? And to also understand that even when we do things like um, cry or 
I yelled at my partner or I got angry about it. Or those are also regulation strategies. Like our body and the way that we regulate is non-judgmental. It's already doing it naturally. So to also put those things on there, like I get upset about it. I yell about it. How effective is that for you? Maybe it's like a plus in the moment and then a minus long-term. You know, so you can kind of rate for yourself and create your own toolbox to kind of add to your like plant care guide. Um, so I think that those are kind of some of the the fundamental pieces to um, address some of some of the areas that that you were just asking about. I love that you're bringing it back to that care guide piece because. It, again, this goes back to the plant care guide, right? And this whole concept of having a care guide, not that is imposed upon you, but is that is experimented with, played with, and figured mm -hmm. out to be right. And it might even change throughout your life, right? You're going to get yes. new stimuli in different situations. Maybe there's a different care guide for work, different one for a relationship, et cetera. Because um, we do have to approach each of these things as they are versus, you know, being like, I'm this way, and then just apply that to everything, right? Um, and so that that toolbox and putting together that care guide, I do think is something that, you know, everyone kind of wants a quick fix, right? Uh, just take magnesium and your anxiety will go away or you'll sleep better, whatever that thing might be. I saw a video, a thumbnail about that earlier today. I was like, yep, that's it. <laughs> just just magnesium. That'll solve all, all the issues. That's all right? you need. <laughs> <laughs> um, but really, it is kind of, um, I, I, I really like that you're bringing up the joy and the playfulness and because that is a danger, right? And I, I've definitely been at fault of it. Um, this stuff can get so serious because it does feel, I mean, because it is in a lot of respects, very serious, you know, relationships could be on the line, your career could mm -hmm. be on the line, so many things. Um, but it does seem like the more serious we take things it, or the more uh, serious might not even be the right word, because really what people are doing is they're taking things they're they're almost being defensive in their seriousness mm -hmm. it's it's even a step deeper than just take because you can be joyful and serious at the same time mm -hmm. you can be lighthearted and still be like focused and, and serious about things um it's almost like don't bring that defensiveness or that anxiety or, or insecurity maybe into it as much um and trying to build that separation i think is uh, really helpful. We've talked on this podcast a lot about, you know, having the stimuli, building some space and then reacting. And so as we think about all these things and we try and figure out what works for us, how much do you think people need to dig into what has happened in the past in order to figure out how to take on the challenges of the future. Um, cause mm -hmm. that is one of those, you know, big things in the clinical world of like how, how much, you know, do we need to unpack before we can start adding in, right? And and finding that balance between those things. What what are your takes on, you know, digging into our history, you know, the whole blaming parents thing or whatever it might be? Um, how do you think people, where do you think people need to start when it comes, maybe they're in a very tough situation right now, they just lost their job and they're in a totally anxious state, Um what would you say they need to do? Do they need to look backwards, look forward, or a combination of both? Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the this the the state itself. So, is it like we are in survival mode right now? Right, survival mode care guide looks very different than like mm, I have some time to reflect and like think think carefully about like how how I'm moving forward and just have that have that time to make some reflections. So. Oftentimes I kind of um, get a sense, if I'm working with, with a client, let's say, um, get a sense of where they'd like to start. The thing, the thing that the past affords us is basically we have some um, patterns that can be pretty stable throughout our life. And so those are the pieces that are helpful to reflect on is like, what have you already learned about those patterns that you want to apply moving forward? What are the patterns that you're trying to shed? And what are the patterns that you want to continue forth? But not everybody needs to start there. So I think, honestly, it's fine to start wherever wherever you are and whatever seems to be pulling you most. Um, and there's actually, there's a few, there's like three concepts as you were like 
continuing to kind of like summarize and integrate what we were talking about, there's three concepts that I want to touch on. Um, first, I think the, the seriousness piece that I think you were getting at, to me, I kind of hear that as what anxiety does to us is we are, it we want to grasp. Anxiety is like, you want to control this thing. And it's like, you are, your claws are just in it. And if you can't get a handle and control on it, your body is stiff, it's tight and everything, you know, you're concerned, you're worried. And in order to kind of tame the anxiety, it's about loosening a little bit. It's a little bit like this. So um, I had a colleague of mine that told me about um, like a, a metaphor for mindfulness, which was like, it's sort of like trying to grasp a really slippery bar of soap. So with anxiety, it's like, obviously the more that you squeeze onto that soap, it's going to literally fly out of your hands and it's not useful. So it's a, a gentle kind of hold. Um, and then the two other concepts. So there's one, you were talking about the separation. One other thing that I'd really recommend um, for folks who are trying to manage anxiety is to what we call, psychologists call externalizing the anxiety. So for kids, this looks like we would create um, a worry bully character. They could choose what color it is, what size it is, um, how, how, you know, does it have lumps and warts and horns and all these things, you know, most of the times they're able to kind of generate, oh, this is what my worry bully looks like. Um, adults can do the exact same. So like for me, and you can kind of frame it in, in the sense of like an inner critic. So for me, like mine is like this really scary, like Medusa character, and she's very militant and very like perfectionistic. And by doing this, you're able to talk and separate your anxiety from say like true self, you know, your inner self, whatever you kind of want to name that thing. Um, but you're able to better identify, is this kind of like barking orders and the, oh my gosh, you're going to be a failure. Oh, this is the worst thing in the world. Is that coming from the worry bully, the externalized anxiety character that you have, or is, where else is it coming from? Um, so it's a concept that you've probably heard of internal family systems. Mm -hmm. I think it's gotten more, more and more popular, but that externalization process um, is taken from, from that therapeutic approach. And I found it very, very helpful. Um, and then the third thing uh, is an exercise that I will sometimes do to reflect on the mental space. So the idea is that if you, if you had to draw, like you can make it any shape that you want, but some sort of like pie format, and you divided it into what percentage of time is, or what percentage of space is allocated to work? What percentage is allocated to relationships? Basically divide up the space into all the things that your mind is thinking about, your to-do list, your whatever, you know, anxiety, what is taking up space and to reflect on, is this how I want it to look? And if not, draw, draw a mental space of like what it is that you want to work toward and what you actually want your mind kind of sp spending time on. Another way to look at it is basically like what or who is taking up real estate in your mental space, right? Who is, who is the, most of the times anxiety is like the unwanted roommate that is not going to leave, but you have to deal with, you know, you've probably heard that before. Um, so to just think about it as like, yeah, what is my current real estate? Um, and what do I want it to look like? I love that. And it, it, it's such a fun exercise because uh, we had a, another episode where we talked about how we need to give attention to the many different parts of our identity. And what you're talking about here is putting it into a pie chart. There's a lot of different ways that people can do that. I, I appreciate that you brought up internal family systems. We've talked about that in the past. And I sometimes have conceptualized it as like a boardroom or a, um, uh, 
an orchestra. And the way I think with the orchestra is like, who is conducting the orchestra? Mm-hmm. Are you up there conducting all the different emotions and each emotion has its seat and, and everything? Or are you in the audience watching anxiety conduct the orchestra, right? Yeah. So trying to get everything back into its proper place. And and I do think that that visualization is, is so helpful. And I love that phrase, the unwanted roommate. Um, as we're digging into these uh, anxious states, a lot of times uh, when I'm working with people, they, when they're feeling heightened um, and you encourage them to maybe set new goals or reprioritize things or, you know, just go, okay, you're, you're maybe in the fight, flight, freeze. You're in the freeze. We got to get you to the, to moving forward, getting you through this. A lot of times the response is to set incredibly unrealistic goals. So, you know, I'm not, I'm, I I know working out is going to help my mental health. So I'm going to work out five days a week. Right. Um, and that kind of binary back and forth between being frozen and then trying to do everything and then going back to being frozen or running away or whatever it might be. How do you see those, um, like trauma responses play into our abilities to make decisions in these moments and how can we maybe, make decisions at the right time or in the right way Mm -hmm. so that we're not just ping-ponging back and forth between these two states. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think you, so you described basically the, the three, um, the three responses that our bodies and humans have to anxiety, it's either going to be moved towards something sometimes known as fight you're going to approach something. Um, the other one is flight, running away. And then the third one is freeze, is what you mentioned. I think the most important thing to know is that none of these three states are, quote, bad. They're not bad. These are very normal responses that our body and humans have over over the millennia of however long we've been here, that we have developed in response to stressors and triggers in our environment. And so I think that that's something that I I really like to to highlight because oftentimes, especially for those of us who are more anxious, there's a lot of judgment you know, about the way that we react to things and a lot of perfectionism around like, oh my gosh, but I'm working on this thing and I'm not supposed to do that. Is that in order to kind of let go of a little bit of that grasping is to develop a sense of compassion that your body and your system state, at some point, this freeze, flight, or fight was very protective for your state. So whenever that may have happened, whether it's a trauma response, um, it was it was very protective for your human self at that time. And right now it's just going off when it doesn't need to, you know, and only you can kind of be, be that person to distinguish. Is this one of those times or is the alarm going off when it doesn't need to? Um, So that's the first thing. Um, And then your other question was really just about like, yeah, how, how do we. Well, when that alarm is going off, when Mm -hmm. that alarm is going off, I let's keep going into that because I, I really like the trend that you're on um, because I think that's what happens a lot of times in the job search or at work where the alarms are going off and they're going off a, somewhat appropriately, right? Because it is a lot on the line, right? Going back to like, we want to take it seriously, but we also want to be playful and curious. I think it's just such a hard balance for people because you know, I'll, I'll say that all the time. I'll say, you know, when you approach networking, you can't just go and say, give me a job, right? That's, Mm -hmm. you know, going to come off as desperate or whatever it might be. You have to kind of approach it with this. I'm curious. I want to learn. And, and generally most people are curious and want to learn to some degree, right? So it's, it is authentic. Um, but it's so buried. The, the, the joy is so buried beneath this overwhelming anxiety that sometimes it's hard to just get there. And I think that when those alarms are going off, um, they and and you're going through the, these these responses, it's it's difficult. 
it's difficult to be able to stop it or to be able to like respond to it because in a lot of ways, an interview is a very dire situation. If it's the only interview mm-hmm. you've had in the last four months and you're feeling fight, flight, or freeze, um, you can look at it and say, yeah, the alarm is technically going off at the right time, but maybe it's too loud. And I think one of the things mm-hmm. that's so interesting is like, that I've been really trying to dig into it because a lot of stuff on the internet is heavily focused on get rid of your anxiety, overcome mm, your yeah. anxiety, destroy anxiety, whatever the, all these things that just make people more anxious as they try to do it. Um, <laughs> when in reality, it's like build a relationship with your anxiety yeah. and um, try and, and, and I, I think what I want to encourage people with this, this podcast to do is, have appropriate level responses. So what is the appropriate level of response for the stress of an interview or the appropriate level response to the disappointment of not getting a job or the appropriate level Mm -hmm. response to losing a job? Because that is a traumatic thing for a lot of people, an identity destroying thing for a lot of people. And, you know, when you lose all sense of security in your life, financial, personal, social, yeah, I mean, the appropriate response might be to go home and cry. Like, that's yeah. absolutely. And so I really appreciate that you're talking about how normal these things are. Because I do think a lot of times, fight, flight, freeze, fawn, all these things, they they get demonized because they're not um, seen as strengths. And they're not seen as like stoic approaches to our career that, you know, we can take on any, like when we think of being resilient, we think of never being anxious, never having a down moment, never like I lose my job. I'm back up the next day. Like that's what I think a lot of people think when you're the snake plant and you're being resilient or the dandelion. Mm -hmm. But what does resilience actually look like in your experience working with people who have gone through very difficult situations and come out the other side, um, maybe not with everything better, but with a, with a grasp on things, with with uh, solutions and, and with, you know, still being able to keep moving forward? Yeah. So I think knowing the definition of resilience is really important. So resilience has gotten... Um, I feel like some hot press of late um, and the actual definition. So as, as given by Dr. Ann Mastin, who created the concept of resilience um, is that there is a threat that happens to the system that could be to, a, you know, an organism. So an individual, but also applied to a community and to an organization, to a workplace. So there is a threat that is happening to the system. And resilience is about the return to either a normal trajectory, like you're you're back on track, um, or there's a bouncing back quality. So I think you're right to call out that resilience is not actually the stable state. In its definition, resilience is actually supposed to be very, very dynamic. Um, And so for those like, in order to to develop like resilient it's it's just it's very interesting and sometimes it's a pet peeve of mine because sometimes when people are like oh I just want to be more resilient I was like but you know in the definition of resilience it's actually like a threat that is happening to you there's a threat to the system I don't know that we want to be saying like yes bring on the threats but it's kind of this concept of like you can also apply it to like you know for people who work out or something, right? There has to be some strain to the muscles in order to get bigger and bigger. Um, And so how do you do that in a way where you don't, um, you you don't like hurt yourself in the process and and that you're still, you know, that that you can still uh, engage and be present and do all these things. and so there are a few factors. A, a lot of what comes up in the research, at least like in resilience, is um, social support. So and and connections, and that's something that in our right now in our remote working space is getting harder and harder. You know, it's already harder. You know, prior to the pandemic. So I really like. Um, there's a you've probably heard of it, but Lost Connections by Johan Hari. 
It's a really good, I think he has a TED talk as well. Um, but just this idea that like, we're losing a lot of social connection naturally as human society is continuing to evolve, that it actually makes sense that anxiety and depression are continuing to be on the rise because this is how as humans, we were wired to respond. Um, and so part of the way to basically counteract that is to very intentionally go and, and build connections, whatever that might mean to you, you know, socially, community, culturally. Um, and, you know, kind of tying it back actually to something that you brought up where um, the the like lofty goals, the setting of, of these lofty goals. Um, one example that I really like to use is from behavioral medicine. And they say that, you know, if you want to try and build a habit of flossing, you literally start with one tooth. So the commitment is I'm just going to floss one tooth. And I mean, you can imagine that like once you get there and you're flossing your one tooth, you're like, I'm already here. So I might as well do the, do the rest. Um, and so the the power of starting really small um, can can be really helpful uh, and, and impactful. And so oftentimes um, for me, you know, obviously I'm working with parents and so some of your listeners may also be like working parents. Um, and for parents, in particular, there is this like crunch, crunch for time and just like everything is feels like chaos. Um, and so I, I will kind of present the idea to them of like, what it, what is the one tooth version of what you can do so we can really break this down, you know, smaller. I love that. What is the one tooth version? That's right. So yeah. good. Um, when it comes to your point there about like hybrid remote work and how the world is changing. I do think that that is something that is incredibly underrated in the rise of anxiety, especially with work. Um, I'm someone who's been remote for many, many years, pre-pandemic even. And when the pandemic happened, I remember going, wow, there's a real difference between working remote because you want to and working remote because you have to. And that was something we talked about quite a bit back then. And and then, um, you know, you see all these articles of the mandated return to work by companies and people are being really, you know, they've gotten comfortable with this new setup and now it's all being thrown out of whack. And there's a big pushback against that. Um, and then there's a lot of people who are like, no, it's actually really good to be in the office. And then other people are like, no, it's great to be home. And obviously it's great to have a mix of both. A hybrid is probably ideal, but it does bring up this thing that I've noticed, which is um, the longer I am remote, the I do feel like I'm losing certain, maybe not losing, but I'm just not exposed to as many different types of connections and interactions and things like that. Um, I know one of the things that comes up a lot in coaching is people hate small talk when we're encouraging them to network. They're like, oh, I hate small talk. I never want to do small talk. I just want to, I want to have deep conversations or no conversations. And it's like, you know, I remember early, <laughs> earlier in my life, I was like, also was against small talk to some degree. And I'm like, you know, there is so much value to being able to small talk. And there is so much value to just like, um, as someone who's not into sports personally, uh, you know, I always like looked at sports with this big, like raised eyebrow. Right. But there is so much value to just being around people in, in a way that's not like my approach to, <laughs> cause I'm always overanalyzing everything, overanalyzing everything. Um, and so when you see these sort of situations happen where, everyone is going remote and i'm i'm seeing that with people on the job search the longer the job search goes on the harder and harder it is to go on interviews and to network because you don't even have the day to day oh hey you know shooting the shit kind of thing um and eventually people just kind of go well i can't send this email to someone and meet them for coffee that's an absolutely overwhelming task cuz i haven't talked to another human in 4 days other than my coach right and that is a very difficult thing. And what I see with anxiety and and um, the fight, flight, or freeze, especially the freeze response where we can maybe avoid things or, or not do things or, or the um, flight response where you run away from things, is that because we're not exposing ourselves to those things 
in small doses where like you almost have to build up an immunity to the poison in small doses. Otherwise trying to do it all at once will kill us. Right. And so Mm -hmm. that's one of the things I think to your point of what's the one tooth. It's like inoculate yourself a little bit every day keeps us moving forward. Um, And I'm curious, you know, do you have any examples of people you've worked with and what are those one tooth goals that they've maybe set for their child or for themselves? Because um, I would imagine even as a parent who's trying to help your child, there's goals that you set for the kid, but there's also probably things that you have to, expectations that you have to manage for yourself and what your expectations are for the the change to occur. Because it does take a lot of time, right? So um, do you have any examples of one tooth uh, goals that you've seen people set and how how they've been able to manage their expectations around timing and how quickly things can can improve? Yes. So yeah, I think working, working as a clinical psychologist, there is a lot of practice that we get with how, how long, you know, sometimes change, change can, can take. Um, and with that, most of the times I, I use the analogy of like, we are, we are seed planters. I have a lot of plant metaphors. I love it. We are seed planters. So every time that you're doing this thing, you're basically tending to your garden, right? And eventually you're going to look at it and then it's going to be like, oh my gosh, it's so abundant and full. But sometimes you can only kind of see the, the seeds and their tiny little seedlings. Um, but it also means that you need to celebrate those wins, right? Um, and to be very clear about like, you know, the goal. So if we're working on something like anxiety, it's like the goal for this particular incremental thing that you're tackling, maybe it's like, I'm going to set up, you know, one meeting with somebody, a networking meeting. Um, The goal is just that you set the meeting. Maybe it's even that you show up to the meeting, right? Maybe that would be the goal. But the goal is actually not for you to have zero anxiety when, when you're in that meeting. So it's, it, you have to be very clear about what, what the success is going to be. Um, so that's been really key. And then examples of these like one tooth self-care moments. Um, there's a lot of walking the dog. That's a very popular one. <laughs> and then there are sometimes opportunities where it's working with either co-parents or other family members that are helping out um, to see, is there going to be five minutes that you you could get away you know, just momentarily or in the morning when things are, you know, you're getting things together, that you can have those five minutes to yourself. Sometimes if people are commuting, it's, um, you know, a minute in the driveway, like in their car by themselves, or maybe if they've gone to the grocery store or something. So one minute just by yourself before you enter into whatever chaos is in your home. Um, sometimes it's also like when when people make their coffee or tea, that's a very like sacred moment for a lot of people. And so I start to, you know, kind of coach to infuse a lot of mindfulness into those moments. Um, yeah. I love that sacred moment analogy. Um, there's some comedian I heard at one point who told a joke where um, they were like, you know, getting their kids and their family and everyone into the car to go on a road trip for vacation. And it's that trip from closing the door on one side of the car to just walk into the driver's seat. That's their vacation. Exactly. So it's yeah. so great. And, and I think yes. as we get to the close of the conversation here, um, the main thing that I want to circle back on when it comes to anxiety and when it comes to all these different things and everything that we're talking about here today, obviously, if people are listening to this podcast is because they are in some sort of stressful space or they're worried that they might be at some point, they want to plan ahead for it. They want to help you know manage their job search process in the most effective and least stressful way possible. But the truth is at the end of the day that all of these emotions and reactions and responses are normal and dare I say helpful uh, to some degree because they're trying to balance out our system, right? And they mm-hmm. might be overcorrected due to past experiences, but they can be readjusted. And so as we get to the end of the conversation here, um, if someone is you know, sitting at their computer in a fight, flight, freeze response, 
what would you say to them right now as this episode closes? Is there any advice you'd want to share with them or something you'd want to remind them of or encourage them to do uh, in order to get through the rest of the day in, in a positive way? Yeah, usually it's to notice that it's happening. So have have an awareness that, that it's happening. Most of the times what helps with that is something that's going to get you rooted and grounded. So whatever that is for you, either sometimes people get the reminder by actually like feeling their feet into the ground, like just notice that. Another one, a really common one, but sometimes I don't really, you know, there's a lot of caveats around it is like really taking a deep breath um, and, and maybe three of them. But I also understand that sometimes like that is the last thing that people want to hear. I'm like in this moment and I don't want to hear that you want me to breathe, but it's all about anything that's going to get you into the present moment. So if that's like, you know, actually pushing your fingers into the desk, something that's going to get you grounded. Most of the times if something is like really immediate happening and you're flooded, that's what is needed in that moment. Another concept that I'll just leave like the listeners with is, um, have you ever seen the hand model of the brain by Dr. Daniel Siegel? I haven't. Okay. So the idea is that you take, for those who, listeners who are like viewing the video, they can see this, but um, so you take your hand and uh, Zoom, Zoom is doing this thing now where like when I raise my hand, it automatically raises the hand. So. Oh, no way. Have really? You seen that? Okay. Yeah. So I can see the little. Yeah. Oh, anyways. interesting. Okay. So, <laughs> so it's going to look like I'm going to raise my hand, but um, so so this this part of your hand is basically like the um, cerebellum and the the areas those like um, bottom part of the of the brain, and then if you tuck your thumb in, this thumb represents the amygdala, where all your emotions come from. So like fear, anxiety, and then when you wrap your um, fingers around, then this part this represents the rest of the the cortex. So these fingers up here represent the prefrontal cortex, which is basically thinking, organizing, problem solving, executive functions, all of that. And so essentially what happens is that when when the fight, flight, or freeze is occurring, this like amygdala is getting super, super hot. And then what happens is you flip your lid is what they what they call it. And so when this happens, literally your prefrontal cortex, like these areas of the brain are no longer as uh, functionally connected. So they're kind of offline. And so this is actually the reason, this is the, the rationale for why we actually tell parents that when your toddler is having a tantrum like this, it is not the time to give a lecture. Mm. And so the, the same thing applies for you. When you are having an anxiety attack, like it is not the time to try and reach to your, your cognitive system to try and problem solve. You're needing to try and figure out a way to get your fingers back down and and regulated so then you can revisit your executive functions and be like okay what are my next steps so it's a helpful concept to kind of get a read on like are you here right now in the meeting because you need to do some like grounding <laughs> in the moment or something um and then to to assess you know yeah. where are you i love that because i think um you know, so much of what's been talked about in terms of like therapy and, and regulation has been focused on um, cognitive behavioral therapies and, and rational mm -hmm. uh, thought. And there's a lot of value in that. And one of the things that I've been exploring a lot lately is the more somatic side of things where it is more about like breathing and getting it. So you're all worked up. Okay. Well, what are you doing? What What are you physically doing? Can you pay attention to that versus just the intellectual side of things? And so I really appreciate you, you encouraging people to focus on grounding themselves versus trying to think their way out of this. Cause I think the thinking, I think the thinking, the thinking our way out of it is what ends up, you know, continuing a spiral in a lot of ways. Cause we go, well, I should be this, but I'm not that, but yep. I should be this. And then we keep going in circles there. Uh, when in reality, we yes. just are what we are today and we got to work with it. Um, this has been an amazing conversation. Where can people find more about your work, Sharon, and follow along with what you're doing? Yeah, sure. So they can find me on LinkedIn. Um, it should be, I like just, I just got married, so I changed my last name. So hopefully Sharon, and then right now the maiden name is in parentheses, L-O, and then um, I do say A-D-U-S-E-I. Um, 
And and then they can also find me at my website, which is www.sharonlow. Oh, sorry, drsharonlow.com. Um, and then also on Instagram, which is at Dr. Sharon Lowe. So I haven't changed those, those handles yet, but wonderful. We'll link all of those in description and I encourage everyone to go check out what you're working on and Sharon, thank you so much for stopping by and sharing these incredible insights today. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you found this conversation to be helpful, please like and subscribe wherever you are listening. We also appreciate it if you take the time to leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help us spread the word and get these ideas out to more job seekers looking to build their careers and improve their lives just like you. If you'd like to learn more about career therapy and see our different coaching options, you can head over to careertherapy.com to learn more. Thank you again for stopping by. We wish you all the best in the future of your career. Have a good one.